Heavenly Father, gracious God, as we approach this season of Advent, we pray that our conversation and learning around Jeremiah would culminate in such a way that our reading of this book informs how we show up and await the ultimate return from exile that you have promised in Jesus. We pray for our conversation today and for our study and just pray that we'd learn something new and that we'd come more alive as people seeking to know you and to be known by you. It's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. In those days and at that time, says the Lord, the people of Israel shall come, um, they and the people of Judah together. They shall come weeping as they seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned towards it, and they shall come and join themselves to the Lord by an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. Jesus said, in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father." Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, 
in the evening or at midnight or at cock crow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Okay, and that is what I say to you in this Bible study. Keep awake. If I see anyone falling asleep, it's going to hurt my feelings because Jeremiah is very exciting. And uh, we need to stay awake in order to uh, fully take in the lessons today. So just a reminder that we have been studying Jeremiah um, all semester, I still think, in terms of semesters. It's a semester. And um we have four weeks left of Jeremiah, including this week. And all of our study of Jeremiah, I've intended to really be a buildup to come together with preparing us and forming us during the season of Advent. And as you know, there are four Advent candles. The first represents hope. The second is preparedness. The third is rejoicing. And the fourth is love. And you have to go in that order. That is the order that Advent uh, suggests we um, take these themes in, that hope is the foundation, that we prepare for the Lord's arrival on that foundation, right? Because if you don't have that foundation, if you prepare on a different foundation, like a foundation of anxiety, that's not the preparation the Lord wants. So hope is the foundation. We prepare um, on, on the foundation of hope, um, that then leads to both the fruit and the practice of joy. And when those things come together, it opens up a life of love. That's kind of the idea. And so what we're going to look at today is how this first foundational Advent theme of hope shows up in Jeremiah. Um, and then we're going to pair it uh, each week. We're going to be pairing select passages from Jeremiah, some of which we've already studied, uh, with one or more of the lectionary readings. And so we paired it with um, the reading for this coming week from the Gospel of Mark. So uh, hope in Jeremiah. I've just selected three passages. I could have selected more, but it is very important, though difficult, to remember that Jeremiah is ultimately a prophetic work of hope. And the reason that's hard to remember is because there's so much judgment in there. There's so much talk of exile. There's so much calling out of the people's idolatry and their lack of faith that it can feel like a book of doom and gloom whenever you read all 50 chapters together. But it's not a work of doom and gloom. It's a work of hope. And and God says as much from the very beginning. Um um, that Jeremiah's work is not just to pluck up and destroy, it's to build and to plant. That the plucking up that God does is always in service to a deeper planting uh, and building that God intends to do. And that comes through very clearly in Jeremiah 29 when God says, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare not for your harm, plans to give you a future with hope. And just to remind you of the context of this verse, there were two deportations to Babylon. The final one was 586 BC. The first was in 596 BC. And in between those, Jeremiah writes a letter from Jerusalem to those in exile, those who feel 
as if they have been plucked up and basically says, no, my intent is to build and to plant, right? My plan is a future with hope. And so the first lesson of Jeremiah is that in the midst of circumstances that often feel hopeless, it is important to hold fast to God having a plan for the church, a plan for our life, a plan for this world, and that ultimately a future with hope is what we are invited into. It's what we are invited to work for, and it's what we're promised will come at the end of time. And part of this is intimacy with God, right? Verse 13, this is a future when you search for me and you're going to find me. Uh, I'm going to let you find me, says the Lord. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all those places I've driven you. I will end your exile. And so as we enter into Advent, the end of exile, a future with hope, that's one of the themes. It's a theme of Jeremiah, a theme of Advent, as is in the second passage, this hope being tied to a new covenant. Um, Jeremiah has been speaking about a new covenant, an everlasting covenant throughout the whole book. And, you know, as Christians, we might take that new covenant uh, for granted, uh, or we might uh, be so used to hearing New Testament, new covenant, that those words uh, cease to feel like news. But remember, the reason the people were in exile uh, and this is laid out in Deuteronomy with the blessings and the curses of the covenant God made with Moses and the people, that because they broke the covenant, there were natural consequences for not keeping that covenant. Exile was one of those, right? So the first covenant, um, the old covenant, whatever adjective you want to use, this was broken and the people were uh, sent into exile as a result of that. And, you know, we did a lot of teasing out of what does that mean for us uh, in our conversation these last few months. And we quoted Paul in Galatians where he says, make no mistake, God is not mocked. You reap whatever you sow, right? So to be in relationship with God is not to be shielded from the natural consequences of our choices, right? Whenever we don't live our life in accordance with God's covenant, within accordance with how God has set up this universe, there is an exile that we experience as a result of that, the natural consequences of not aligning our life with the flow of how the universe actually is. And I'm not saying, just to be clear, that um, exile is just a metaphor. I mean, the Israelites really went into exile for 70 years in Babylon. But even though it is much more than a metaphor, it's not less than a metaphor. Um, exile is a metaphor for our life east of Eden. And that exile is always tied to breaking the covenant, right? So God comes along and says, okay, um, there's going to be a new covenant. And this is not a covenant that replaces the first covenant, uh, it is not something that wipes out the first covenant. Um, and, you know, one one could be forgiven for uh, assuming that at first. There are moments when, you know, for instance, um, the story of Noah, when 
you know, God's just fed up with humanity and decides to flood the whole world and do something new through uh, Noah and his children. And and then, of course, that doesn't work. And God basically says, OK, I'm never going to try that again. And of course, that doesn't tell us anything about God as if God made a huge mistake. It tells us something about God's covenants, that God doesn't wipe out covenants, that any covenant God makes, God keeps. It's the same whenever God comes to Moses and says, you know, Moses, my wrath is burning hot against this, these people. Let me destroy them uh, and make a new nation through you. This is not something God really wants to do. This would say something very problematic about God. Rather, what's being depicted is Moses um, uh, exemplifying what it means to lead and to wrestle with God and to say, no, God, I'm going to hold you to the covenant. This is what leaders do. We They hold each other to the covenant. Uh, and so there are many instances where uh, it is clear that God doesn't uh, isn't allowed. Um, um, God isn't allowed by virtue of God's own principles to just quit whatever covenants God makes. God fulfills all covenants. And so whatever this new covenant is will be fulfilled as will the first covenant. And this new covenant is the outgrowth of that first covenant. But it is different. It's got a little different feel to it. And that difference is tied to the final verse of our passage, I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Um, that this is a covenant where God's law is not written on tablets, but rather it is written on human hearts. They shall be my people. They're not going to have to teach one another. They're not going to need John to lead a Zoom Bible study any longer, because whenever this new covenant is fulfilled, they will all know me from the least to the greatest, and I will remember their sin no more, right? So Jeremiah is teeing up this new covenant. And of course, whenever we go to the final night of Jesus's life, when he is celebrating the Passover, which remembers, right, the liberation of the people from Egypt into the wilderness where that first covenant was formed, Jesus very much links his life with Jeremiah 31 by taking the bread and saying, this is my body, by taking the chalice and saying, this is my blood, my blood of what? The new covenant. And of course, we um, celebrate that every Sunday in the Eucharist. And then finally, the third passage, we can ask the question, who is this covenant for? Is it for the people of Judah? alone? Uh, is it for uh, St. Michael's alone? Is it for the Jews alone, the Gentiles alone? And, and notice, um, we could have picked other passages, but there is a universal scope to this covenant. Um, here, we're talking about the people of Israel and the people of Judah together, coming to the Lord together, weeping. And as I like to remind people, um, the civil war between Judah and Israel is well over 100 years old when this was written uh, in 722 BC. Israel was sacked by the Assyrians, uh, the 10 tribes of the north uh, in their pure form might not even exist anymore. And so to talk of Israel uh, coming together with Judah you might as well just say there's going to be resurrection from the dead because 
that's where Israel is. They have been obliterated up at the north. And so to talk about Israel coming with Judah, uh, I think, is to point towards resurrection. Uh, but of course, that promise is not for Israel and Judah alone. But we go to what God says in the book of Isaiah, I've given you as a light to the nations that my salvation, my new covenant might reach to the ends of the earth. And so just to kind of bring all that together, Advent, hope, what is this about? It's about a good future and one that we need to cling to, especially in difficult circumstances. That future is tied to intimacy with God. When you search for me, you're going to find me. And that intimacy is made possible by a new covenant. It's not going to be like the first covenant, one that we're bound to break, one that when we break, we go into exile. It's a covenant when God remembers our sins no more, that basically our sins will no longer get in the way of the intimacy that God designed us for. And then finally, our hope is that this is universal. Um, I don't mean to say that we are all universalists. I just mean that it's universal. It's offered to everybody. It's open. It's free. Uh, it's for Israel and Judah. It's for Jew and Gentile. It's for black and white. It's for male and female, as Paul will spell out in his letter to the Galatians. And so what does this have to do with Jesus's you know, interesting words in the gospel of Mark about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. Uh, and there's some very interesting parallels between Mark and Jeremiah. The first thing is this whole business about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. This is a quote from Daniel chapter seven. And Daniel chapter seven is dealing with the same thing in a sense that Jeremiah is dealing with, which is the destruction of the temple in the year 586 BC and the deportation of everybody from Jerusalem to Babylon. Um, how do you talk about God's house being destroyed? How do you talk about the place where God has put his name being reduced to rubble by pagans? Well, you talk about it as the day the sun stopped giving its light. You talk about it as the day the stars fell from heaven, right? You use apocalyptic imagery. And so Jesus here is quoting the language of Daniel, referring to the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. But remember, uh, as we talked about last week or the week prior, the people returned and they rebuilt that temple. Well, guess what? In the year 70 AD, the Romans then destroyed that temple again. The political circumstances of first century Rome and uh, 580 BC Jerusalem were eerily similar, right? The circumstances Jesus preached in and the circumstances that Jeremiah preached in were eerily similar and both foresaw and predicted the destruction of the temple. And that's tragic. But what Jeremiah said was, you're going to go rebuild that temple. But notice, Jesus doesn't say we're going to rebuild the temple. He is, by the way, referencing in a cryptic way um, the destruction of the temple that is to come. That's what all scholars seem to agree on. Um, 
that Mark was written about the time that temple was destroyed. And so Jesus is referencing that this temple will be destroyed. Will that temple be rebuilt? Well, yes and no. Uh, that temple has not been rebuilt. Um, you can go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and you can see part of the foundation of, of those temples. But Jesus will come along and, and basically, or, or the Apostle Paul will come along and say, um, you are the temple. You know, Peter will say, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Um, Paul will say, you are the body of Christ. And so what happens with this new covenant where God remembers our sins no more is that our lives and our community comes together uh, to be the temple of God that can never be destroyed again. And this, of course, is tied to what? The everlasting covenant, the new covenant. Um, and so whenever Jesus says, from the fig tree learn its lesson, anyone who's been studying Jeremiah with us knows that uh, figs, uh, fig trees, uh, are a big part of the book of Jeremiah, that Jesus is working not just off the book of Daniel, but off the book of Jeremiah. Because remember in Jeremiah 24, um, he uses that symbolism of good and bad figs to represent the fate of the people of Judah who were taken into exile, right? The good figs were those who cooperated with whatever God was doing, who would go into exile, trusting that God would then restore them. And Jesus says something kind of similar when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who want to lose their life will save it. Those who want to avoid exile will be exiled. Those who enter into exile will be restored. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. From the book of Jeremiah, learn its lesson, right? Jesus is directly referencing all the things we've been studying here. He has as the backdrop of his teaching and what's about to happen with the destruction of the temple um, by the Romans, and what a tragedy that's going to be, right? Where devout Jews will once again say the sun is not shining, the stars are falling from heaven, and Jesus will say, you know, yeah, the temple's going to pass away, but my word will not pass away. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. My word is to take up your cross, follow me to lose your life and to trust that God will give you a new life in return. And so the promise here, you know, Jesus says, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Um, who's near? The son of man, right? Why was the destruction of the temple so devastating? Why was exile so devastating? It's basically taking people away from the presence of God, right? God dwelt in Jerusalem. God dwelt in the temple. And basically what Jesus is saying is that would be devastating if you were removed from the presence of God. But when you see these things taking place, remember heaven and earth will pass away. Temples will pass away but my word will not pass away, and I am still very near to you in that moment. And so the hope here is shifting, and Jesus is really building off all the same elements of hope Jeremiah was offering, right? That future with hope, that new covenant, 
the restoration being for all people, but rather than that hope being focused in the rebuilding of a physical temple, it's going to be, what does Jesus say in the Gospel of John? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. But then John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. And that, of course, was his physical body that got raised from the dead. And it is our bodies as we come together making up the body of Christ, right? We are to be the place as his followers where heaven and earth meet and where God is to be encountered. And that's why we have to stay awake, right? That's why the message is stay awake. Um, don't be fooled when everything around you is falling apart. Don't be overly devastated when the most significant thing in your life crumbles, right? For them, it was the temple. What is it for you? Whenever that crumbles, grieve, but not, as Paul says, as those without hope. Instead, be aware, keep alert, and know that you've been given work to do, right? It's like a man going on a journey. He leaves home. He puts his slaves in charge. He gives each one work to do. Um, don't fall asleep, stay awake. You've been given work to do. And so to kind of land this plane, um, the hope of Jeremiah, the hope of Jesus, it's the same hope, but what Jesus does is kind of color in some of the lines here with um, how this new covenant comes into being, what the temple of God is, and who are the people that are restored, right? For Jeremiah, Israel and Judah together might have been as far as he could imaginatively stretch. Now, maybe not. There are some references in the book about the different nations kind of getting in on the action. But, you know, Jeremiah says, I'm going to leave the restoration at Israel and Judah. But Mark, Mark was written to Gentile Christians, right? By the time... Uh, Mark, as a gospel, was written. It wasn't just Israel and Judah. It was a Syrophoenician woman. It was the Roman centurion. Uh, it was a universal, global, they all shall, shall know me from the least to the greatest. So I guess the question I leave you with, and then we'll go into conversation, what does it mean for you to stay awake? You know, so easy to go to sleep in today's culture, to spend our life looking at a screen to get lost in the news and gossip and drama and fear and anxiety. Uh, how do you stay awake? Uh, what does hope mean to you? And how do you cultivate hope in your life? And then finally, you know, Advent is associated with future expectations because the great restoration has not happened yet. And so how do we balance putting our hope in the future with a call to find God and to be present and content here and now, right? Because there is work to do now and there is joy to be found now.